Isaiah chapter 6 is our text for this morning. I would invite you to turn there. Isaiah 6. Someone has said that the most important thing about you is what you think of when you think of God. What do people think of when they think of God? Well, you ask that question to a hundred different people and you might get dozens of different answers. Who is God? What is God like? Some people, God is just an impersonal force. To other people, He's like a distant figure who doesn't really have much to do with the ongoing operation of the world. To other people, God is one of many equally powerful spirit beings. To some people, God is like a gentle grandfather looking down indulgently upon his mischievous children with a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face. To other people, God is kind of like a business partner. And uh, if they give him a little of what he wants, and he'll help them out with what they need. Other people, he's like a life coach who just indiscriminately affirms every single human being. You're great and you can do it. Believe in yourself. And to others, I think probably to a lot of people, and especially Americans, God is just kind of like, a bigger version of what they imagine themselves to be. The question remains, who is God in reality? Or what we think God is will never in fact change who He actually is. And yet, who we think He is will mean all the difference in the world for us. Who is God? What is He like? And in His mercy, we're not left without revelation. Amen? Oh, He is so sweet to reveal Himself. The heavens declare the glory of God. Our consciences cry out the law and the nature of God. His character. And we have been given this most precious of all divine revelations, the special revelation of His Word, His communication of Himself to His people, the prophets, the apostles, now recorded for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Holy Scripture. What we need to do this morning is to allow God Himself to say who He is. To let our minds be renewed according to His own self-revelation. So we have come across now, we've come to this passage which is, uh, I think, which is uh, in, in every way, a piece of holy ground uh, that reveals the Lord Himself. So I'm going to ask you if you would stand one more time and read together with me 
Follow as I read Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Let those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. There are four elements recorded involving involved with Isaiah's encounter with God. We're just going to look at three of them this morning and look at the last one next week. But the first thing we see in this text is a vision. Isaiah has a vision. He, God opens his eyes, as it were, to see into heaven, to see a figure upon the throne. And the first question that I want to put before you is who this figure is. Who is this one upon the throne? And the obvious answer is that it's well, it's God. It is God upon His throne. And of course, most people, when they think about the throne of God, they're familiar with Trinitarian theology. They would think of God the Father upon His throne. And of course, the God is a spirit whose essence cannot be seen but he may manifest himself in various visible and visionary forms. Others have noted that John chapter 12 and verse 41 speaks of Jesus, the Son of God. John, after quoting this passage, the, the words of the enthroned figure, after quoting the words of the one on the throne that we read in Isaiah 6 verse 10, John says this, Isaiah said these things because he saw his, that is Christ's, speaking in the context there of Christ, he saw his glory and spoke of him. But I want you to also consider Acts chapter 28, and there Paul quotes these same words from Isaiah 6.10, only Paul attributes them to the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
So who is it that's sitting on the throne? And the answer is that Isaiah saw nothing less than the triune God. Isaiah saw, as it were, the Holy Father, Holy Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy, 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 the angels cried out. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. He was standing in this vision, underneath this throne, seeing the triune God embodied in Christ, but the triune God in Christ who is the radiance of the glory of the Father, the one from whom the Spirit proceeds, he saw the Lord upon his throne. And the question is, how should we think about him who sits upon the throne? How do we think about that triune God? How do we think about Christ? Who is He? What is He like? And while there are, of course, many images of God throughout the Scripture that tell us, that teach us to think about Him in a certain way, He is a husband of a bride. He is a father of children. He is a rock. He is a strong tower in which God's people may find refuge. Though there are a lot of uh, images that teach us who God is, probably no image is more pervasive throughout the course of the entirety of the Scripture than this one. The Bible begins and ends this way. We read earlier Revelation chapter 4. The same vision of God upon a what? Upon a throne. He is a king. A king. Kings were so far removed from kings in our uh, experience. We're talking about an absolute monarch. A universal sovereign. A wise and holy despot, if you will. Whose judgments cannot be questioned whose decrees cannot be overturned. He is the king upon his throne. And in his hands rests the fate of every single one of us, of you and of me and of every single creature on the face of the earth and in the heavens above, for that matter. He is the king of all the universe. He is the king... And Isaiah sees this vision of this king. Uh, We're told in the year that Judah's king Uzziah, also called Azariah, that that the year that that king died. Now, you may know a little bit of something about Uzziah. Uh, You can read his account in uh, 2 Kings chapter 5 and 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Overall, King Uzziah was declared to be a good king. But in the end, he was lifted up with pride. And the Bible records how he entered actually into the temple in order to offer incense himself before the presence of God. That offering that was forbidden for anyone to offer except for the priest chosen by God for that task. And because of his pride, God struck the man with leprosy 
and he lived out the rest of his days that way. His son Jotham had to rule in his stead uh, for the rest of King Uzziah's life. But upon Uzziah's death, Isaiah has the heavens open and he sees another king on his throne. And that throne is exactly where Uzziah was struck in the temple itself. Uzziah, good a king as he was, was not holy enough to enter into God's temple, God's house. But here is a king whose throne inhabits the holiest place itself, whose train, the train of his robe, fills that temple. He is the embodiment of that temple itself. Here is the one upon his throne, the one who is rightfully in that holiest of all holy places on the face of the earth. He is holy, 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 hallowed, sacred, sanctified, set apart from all others, moral perfection itself. He is the essence of glory. He is distinct in a category by himself, one to whom nothing else can be compared. He is who he is. That is to say, he is holy, holy, holy. God's name in the scripture is qualified by the adjective holy more than any other adjective combined. Hebrew uses repetition in some occasions to emphasize a point, to to create a kind of superlative effect. So, for example, the phrase full of pits in Genesis 14, talking about a a particular area, area of land that was full of bitumen pits, is literally pits, pits in Hebrew. Or the term... Uh, translated solid gold, the terms translated that way in first in second Kings chapter twenty five translates in Hebrew just gold gold, so the repetition heightens something it creates a superlative, but nowhere in scripture anywhere else is this kind of repetition used in a threefold way except to describe the infinite sacredness of the triune God of the Holy One of Israel, of the One who is infinitely and perfectly holy. He is holy and He is fearsome. I struggled for an adjective here because awesome is so overused it means practically nothing. And I'm not communicating that in that in Christ we are, in one sense, fearful. He is our Father. But speaking of humanity in a a general sense, the truth is, and and especially as, as fallen humanity, He is fearsome. The Bible says that He... In this vision of Isaiah, God God gives him a glimpse of who he really is. And he's surrounded by his angelic hosts, the the army of heaven, more mighty than any 
military on the face of this planet. An angel army of seraphim. Fascinating creatures. Literally, the term means burning ones. Angels on fire, as it were. Burning ones. Holy. Burning with a a holy passion for God and the holy justice of God against all ungodliness. Seraphim guarding the holy throne of God. These burning ones, sometimes the term is translated as serpents in the Bible. Maybe because of the fiery pain of their bites or perhaps because of the their fiery bronze coloring. In fact, there's a there's a possible relation, I think, between the word for snake or serpent and the word for bronze. These seraphim, uh, also, in, as I say, translated serpent. In fact, it's translated in Isaiah 14 as fiery serpents, which are said to fly, actually. And I... Perhaps that is because the seraphim have a serpent-like appearance, which may be what gave rise to legends of fire-breathing dragons. In other words, those legends may not be all fantasy. These angels are so fearsome that they they were worshipped by many peoples as gods. Egyptians revered the cobra whose hood resembled wings spread out. The Canaanites had statues of serpents that they put around their dwellings. The Arameans worshipped a six-winged god. Perhaps it wasn't arbitrary that Satan appeared in the garden as a serpent. But under the judgment of God, instead of rising on wings to fly to the heavens, he was cast down to the earth and made to crawl in the dust. In reality, these mighty seraphim are mere creatures that do the bidding of the Almighty One. This vast army of these most powerful creatures that God has created, these do the Lord's work at His beck and call, for He is the Sovereign of all. These most mighty, fearsome, fiery creatures, the stuff of legends, they cover their faces in the presence of the Almighty Sovereign of the universe. But when these creatures herald out the holiness of God, The Bible says that Isaiah in this vision, in this temple, the the whole foundations of the temple are shaken. I remember a number of years ago walking back from the mailbox, uh, getting the mail and a dark storm coming in very quickly and heard a clap of thunder that was so loud and so sudden that I felt like the earth reverberated. It was like the loudest, most terrifying thunderclap that I've ever experienced. And I don't know if the earth shook, but I know I shook. And I literally felt my heart beat, raise, and as if I were quaking in myself. And if that's what it's like 
if that's just a little bit of what it's like to hear the voice of an angel, then it is beyond imagination what it would be like for a sinner to stand under the voice of the Almighty God. It's no wonder that the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai said, please, please, don't let God speak to us. We need an intercessor. We need someone to go on our behalf. Such is the holiness of God in Isaiah's vision that this temple throne was veiled with thick smoke. Just like on Mount Sinai when the top of that mountain was covered, veiled off as it were by this cloud or like the glory cloud that came down and covered the tent of meeting when Moses went to meet with God there or like when they offered the sacrifices and the incense burning constantly in the tabernacle that would create a kind of screen to prevent sinful men from seeing, as it were, the holiness of God. And the truth is, unless God veiled His holiness, it would consume absolutely all wickedness and all wicked people in His proximity. This is the picture that we are given that teaches us to think rightly about God and who God is. He is the Holy One of Israel. And one day that God, friends, will appear in all of His glory, in all of His holiness. And in that day, who will be able to stand? Who can endure the day of His coming? And if you would be saved in that day, then you must have a vision of God now to see Him now as it were through the Scriptures in His holiness. That You may have this vision that Isaiah had and respond the way Isaiah responded. And that's what we see next in this text, in this encounter, is the confession of Isaiah. We have a confession. Isaiah responded, I think the only way you can respond when you really see the holiness of God. Woe is me, for I am lost. Last week, we looked at the end of chapter 5. And remember that Isaiah pronounced six woes upon the people of Israel, right? Woes and condemnations for their sinfulness. But now he confesses that he, along with the rest of Judah, is sinful. And I think that's the way that you know that you've really seen God for who He is. You've really seen the holiness of God. You really feel keenly your own sinfulness. Your own guilt. Rather than making excuses. Rather than justifying myself. Rather than blaming somebody else. Rather than, when, than, than making these kinds of excuses or pointing to others. I say, woe is me, I am undone. Every mouth is stopped when they see God in His glory. I mean, even a person who hasn't seen the holiness of God might well say, well, you know, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But an awakened soul says, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I plead with you, sinner, before it's too late, that you would cast yourself down before the feet of the Almighty God and confess your sin, your sin, that you would see that the eyes of the Holy One have pierced your soul right down to the things that you think and the motives of your heart. You would acknowledge before the Almighty that you are undone. That you are a guilty sinner. There may yet be hope for you if you would humble yourself before Him. To see the Lord on the day of judgment would be a sure and certain destruction. Before it's too late, see yourself as the Lord sees you, as the sinner that you are. But praise God, there is thirdly in this text a cleansing. One of the fiery ministers of God flew down with a burning coal in his hand, which is an amazing thing itself. He had taken it with tongs from off the altar before the Lord, but he brings it down and touches Isaiah with it, which is a reminder of the Lord's initiative in bringing salvation to us, right? Isaiah brought nothing to with which to cleanse himself. Isaiah is a man who is nothing in himself, has no right to access before the throne of God, and yet God in His mercy sends the angel to do His bidding to bring this means of cleansing, this instrument of His cleansing down to Isaiah. And He comes down from heaven with condescending grace. For the Lord knows that none of us is able to come up to Him to come into His presence, lest we be consumed. The angel touched Isaiah's lips with a coal that was taken from the altar. From the altar. The place of sacrifice. And there is no cleansing. There is no approach to God without a sacrificial offering that pleases God. The offering that is a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. The perfect obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed His life, laid down like a sacrifice uh, unto the Lord. And the Lord, like He did when He looked upon the sacrifice of Abel, looks upon the sacrifice of Christ and receives it. It is a pleasing thing to Him. He looks at the life of Christ and His whole perfect obedience And he says, yes, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He obeyed in all points, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. The altar is not only a place of, of sacrifice, it's a place of substitution. A place where the innocent lambs were killed and sacrificed in the place of the worshiper. Those altars, that altar was covered with blood, just like the old rugged cross. The Lamb of God on that cross bore away our sins and endured there the fiery wrath of God. That cross became, as it were, the altar of God where that sin offering, that 
offering was lifted up to God. And that cross and that altar, that altar becomes the only source, the only source in all the world of cleansing. There is no other hope, no other place for any of us. But that that coal from that altar was brought down and made to touch the lips of Isaiah. Now, as that angel was coming down, I we're not told what Isaiah thought, what he might have expected as he saw this in his vision. This red hot coal coming closer and closer to a most sensitive part of your body. He had just confessed his sin against God with this very member of his body and it deserved to be seared in the punishment of God. But instead the angel touches him and says, this has touched your lips. Your sin is taken away. Your guilt is removed. And that can be so, friends. It can only be so because Christ has already taken the heat of God's judgment because He has endured the wrath of God against our sin. The fire of God's holy presence mediated through Christ brings only purification rather than consuming us. This is the only way. It's by being touched by a coal from the fire from the fire of God's wrath. That is, that Christ who took it is applied to us. Christ's death must be applied. His death will never do any good unless it touches you personally. Unless you are united to Him by faith. Unless the blood is applied to your heart through repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Isaiah experienced. It's what every sinner experiences is the only way for his cleansing. And only then was Isaiah able to hear the words, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Your sin is covered. It's atoned for. Just like the altar was covered in the sacrificial blood, so sin is covered that it may not stand in the sight of the holy God. And just like the sacrificial animal on the Day of Atonement, on whose, on whose body the sins of the people were laid, was driven off into the wilderness to suffer and die, so Christ removes our sin. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He removes it from us as far as the east is from the west. This is the glory of the cleansing that comes only through the Lord Jesus. And the result was immediate. It was, this has touched you and your sin is what? Taken away. Not, this has touched you, now go out and, uh, and, and try to get rid of your sins so that you may be acceptable. No, this has touched you. Your sin is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Isaiah didn't try to have to clean up his speech so that he might approach God. God himself made Isaiah holy by his own holiness that should consume all around it. Instead, it purifies those this one who humbles himself because of the mercy and the kindness of God. God Himself provided the sacrifice. God Himself 
purified this man by a touch. And this is the gospel. This is what Christ does for all of those who come to him in humble, repentant faith. Amen? He, he, he says, go your way. Your sins are forgiven. You can be delivered. Maybe there's somebody of you who, who says, you know, I want to be a Christian. I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to be a Christian. I'm trying to be worthy. And I'm saying to you that you are completely misunderstanding the holiness of God, misunderstanding the, the, the sinfulness of your own heart, and misunderstanding the freeness of God's grace. For no one can make himself worthy. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. So I admonish you and urge you this morning to run to Christ. To cast yourself upon the mercy of God. Oh, woe is me. I am lost. Lord, save me. Deliver me. Cleanse me. Sanctify me by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. By Him alone. That is the cry. and That's the only cry that brings upon a soul the mercy and the kindness of God. Amen. Would you bow with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word. We do pray that it would have its good effect in our lives. Lord, any, any mercy that You show is of Your kind, sovereign grace. We ask that you would extend that grace even now to someone who is yet outside of Christ. You would extend it to all of us in regards to our sinfulness. That we would hold on to Christ and find the cleansing that comes only in Him. We pray it in His name. Amen.